0: I wanted the cutting and the needles to be completely precise, because I was thinking about Holbein's kind of Henry VIII portrait in a certain way. And I was thinking about what the word pervert meant in 1994 in my community, especially when there was a beginning of a divide within our own community.
1: From the TED Audio Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 17 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, artist Catherine Opie talks about her photography and her self portraits.
0: So, what does the word pervert mean? How do we deal with language? You know, is this enough of a pervert for you?
1: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Design Matters, sponsored by User Testing. Stay tuned for later in the episode to hear about how User Testing can help you with your new project. Before my interview today with Catherine Opie, I'd like to talk to you about a brand new book that I'm really excited about. The Finnish brand Marimekko is synonymous with joyful colors and bold, expressive prints. A beautiful new book from Yale University Press titled Marimekko, the Art of Printmaking, illustrates Marimekko's 70 years of extraordinary designs and tells the story of the people behind the brand and the feminist, inclusive ideals that guide them. Learn more at yalebooks.com or ask for the book at your local bookstore. Catherine Opie is one of the most preeminent artists of her generation and has made some of the most indelible images of our time. Her intimate photographic portraits of queer communities in Los Angeles and San Francisco put her on the map in the early 1990s. She also works in landscapes, both natural and urban. Her black-and-white photos of empty freeways and strip malls hold up a haunting mirror of contemporary America. And once you see some of her self-portraits, I guarantee they will stay with you forever. Her work has been featured in hundreds of major museums, gallery exhibitions, and public collections all around the world. For the first time, the body of her work has been published in a stunning new monograph published by Faden, it includes over 300 images, as well as essays written by the likes of the New Yorker's Hilton Als. She joins me today to talk about the evolution of her extraordinary career.
0: Catherine Opie, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you so much, Debbie. And design does matter, so I'm happy to be here. Thank you, thank you, Catherine. I understand that
1: you still have a Garfield stuffed animal and a third place bowling trophy from the 1970s on display in your studio.
0: Well, I actually think it, I actually think it's eleventh place, <laughs> <laughs> which even makes it uh, more humorous in my mind. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Why do you still have these objects and and why on
0: display? Well, as you see you can see me I have a shelf behind me. If people were on Zoom, they would be able to see a shelf behind me that had numerous books and little things and recently my mom was cleaning out her house and we're about ready to move her to another place that is for uh living at 85 in a really beautiful way. And uh, she brought me this trunk of objects. And when I opened it, it was just I had these shelves and I thought, oh, well, I'll just have this weird Garfield stuffed animal and one can't throw out their 11th place plaque of bowling from Sandusky, Ohio.
1: No, I agree. I have to confess, I have a, a little trophy from sixth grade coming in third place in the three-legged race. And that, that is also important to me still.
0: (laughs) See, you did, you did a little bit better than me. Well, yeah,
1: just just the only evidence of my athletic prowess I will ever have in my life. So yeah. <laughs> Catherine, you were born in Sandusky, Ohio. Your mother was a gym teacher until she had children. Your dad ran his family's art supply company. Is it true we also had one of the country's preeminent collections of Republican political memorabilia?
0: Yeah, both Republican and Democratic. Actually, it was oh, a, it okay. was a large overview of of political uh, paraphernalia, including all the Lincoln ferreotypes. So it was quite an extensive, uh, fairly important collection, actually.
1: What has happened to the collection?
0: Uh, He sold it upon us leaving Ohio, and I think that that person uh, donated it all to the Smithsonian. In my father's obituary, it said that he donated it to the Smithsonian, but my my father was a, a frugal businessman, and I think he sold it to somebody who then donated it.
1: And I understand he gave you an embroidered commemorative ribbon made after the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Is that true?
0: Yes, that is true. I have that upstairs here in the studio in this special little box that is actually a family business box, Opie Craft. And it's kind of his treasure chest that um, he sent to me before he passed away so that I would have these different little moments, including he always carried an Ohio Buckeye in his pocket. For Locke. So it's just this little treasure chest of things that included the Lincoln ribbon because Lincoln happened to be assassinated, unfortunately, on what is my birthday, April 14th. Oh, wow. Now, was your father a Republican? My father was a Republican up until uh, Obama ran. And when Obama ran, my father switched to being a Democratic voter. Uh, for the reasons that the Republican Party was no longer the Republican Party that he believed in. And he did not like the conservatism, and he believed that women had a right to choose, and he believed having a lesbian daughter that I had rights and so forth. And so the Republican Party that he grew up with was no longer an affiliation that he wanted to have.
1: He must have been extraordinarily proud to know that your work was hanging in the Obama White House.
0: Yeah, no, he was. I mean, he was very proud of me. He, it, you know, one of my biggest nervous moments was. Both him and my stepmother coming to the 1995 Whitney biannual opening because it was the first time I was ever in a major museum show. And obviously my queerness was very much on display there, but he just rode along with it in in a very good way, you know, surprisingly so.
1: Well, I want to talk about the exhibit in a little bit. um, But I want to start first with your first experiences with photography. I understand at eight years old, while in the fourth grade, you wrote a book report on the photography of Lewis Hine. Um, Why Lewis Hine? And how did you first find out about him?
0: Well, it was actually not on Lewis Hine. It was on the photograph of the, the girl from the Carolina Mills. And okay. it was in my social studies book. And I was reading about child labor, and I was supposed to be writing a report about child labor and the history of that in the U.S. And But I spoke about the photograph and what the photograph told me. And it made me realize that also probably growing up with all this political memorabilia around me, that history is made within an image culture. And so I had that awareness, uh, apparently, and asked for a camera on my ninth birthday so I could be a, you know, a documentary photographer.
1: So you always knew what you wanted to do and to be
0: in a way i guess i mean i i guess so it seems now that it's hard to believe that that was really like what i was going to decide to be but at that moment it was important to me and the camera was bought for me for my birthday and i used it throughout my life to document my life and that is including even when we moved to california I used my babysitting money to build a dark room in in our house, where I ruined the family tiles <laughs> of the bathroom <laughs> with chemistry. Uh, design does matter. Yeah, your mother gets mad at you if you get fixer and developer all over bathroom tiles. But well, it was a spare bathroom, it was, right? It was, my, was, it, was, 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 was it, my bathroom attached to my okay. room, so it was a perfect way to make a dark room. Yeah, I spent a lot of hours in there.
1: I understand that you went about making friends when you moved to San Diego or outside of San Diego by taking photos. And I believe this is also when you had your first crush.
0: Is that correct? Yeah, I did. I had my first <laughs> crush on a very beautiful woman who was a profoundly amazing actor by the name of Cerie Monet Flack, and she lives in England at this point. But uh, she was my first major crush, where I was still trying to figure out certain things, but just couldn't not be around Cerie, and would you know I grew roses and I would bring her a rose every day, and so it was pretty crush-worthy, actually. Although Seri didn't realize that I had a crush on her. I met up with her later in England and said, you know, I was completely in love with you in high school. And she was like, you were? I thought you were just my best friend. And I was like, oh, well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You, You knew from a young age that you were gay, but have said that the lack of role models around you made coming out a difficult process. And you and I are the same exact age, both born in 1961. And so I didn't come out till much, much later in life. And so I fully understand that sort of difficulty. What was the most difficult aspect for you?
0: I, I think that until I moved to San Francisco, again, I didn't have it surrounding me. I was called names in high school. You know, I was called a dyke. I was, you know, kind of harassed in that way. Being homosexual scared me. I thought that I wouldn't be accepted in society. I carried that, you know, fear and internal homophobia within me. And it didn't happen, like, legitimately until I moved to San Francisco and I was sitting on a curb with my best friend, uh, Dean, at that moment in time, Dean Moser, who I had met at a residence club that I was working for my room and board while I went to San Francisco Art Institute. And Dean thought I had a crush on him. And so <laughs> Dean said, "Kathy, there's something I have to tell you. I'm, I'm, I'm gay," and I was like, "Oh, well, I, I, I am too," you know. And that was the first time that it was actually spoken, and then there was no hesitation after speaking it.
1: What's so interesting to me in terms of looking at your body of work is, despite the difficulty that you might have experienced and the inner homophobia, you did seem right from the very beginning in your body of work to em- not I, embrace isn't even the right word, but celebrate celebrate your your sexuality and your gayness
0: yeah no i think that i i did but it wasn't right away actually it took some time i mean there was the side person kathy opie right who then everybody who is a friend called me calls me kathy like kathy opie published in on our backs magazine not katherine opie so i took on these different kind of personas i suppose to again create uh different compartments of my life and what it you know and i guess that's in some ways like having multiple closets in one's house I, and i i think that you know um really beyond being Ethiopian on our backs and celebrating that through uh queer culture it wasn't until becoming a part of act up and queer nation that I decided to make my work publicly about my queerness. But I would have to say that a good portion of my work was trying to be a very serious street photographer in San Francisco. And then my queerness within my work at CalArts was actually the dissemination and, and observation of master plan communities in Southern California which I kind of grew up in from moving from Sandusky to Rancho Bernardo, Poway, California, and watched that turn into a master plan community. So I think, you know, the queerness was always also involved in relationship to how do we fit in this world? And, you know, if there's this kind of separation in relationship to idea of community, then how do I portray my community? And I think it was a quandary for quite some time.
1: The quandary also, I think, began even before you committed to photography as a profession. At, at one point after you graduated high school, you considered becoming a kindergarten teacher and even went to uh, Virginia Intermont College to study early childhood education. I mean, that's in, in thinking about the pathways of a life. You were on that pathway. <laughs> no, I was. But, oh, yeah,
0: I was. I, I profoundly love children. Like I really, really love children, and uh I suppose that's even the other aspect of queerness is how was I going to become a mom because that was always uh what I wanted to be, even as a child, I would tell my mom that I was going to have twelve children for some reason wow. yeah that- I, so, uh, yeah, that would have been too many. <laughs> Yeah, so kindergarten, you know, I was a camp counselor for a long time, and I really liked kids. So I just imagined that I would be a pretty fun kindergarten teacher. A year
1: into your studies to become a teacher, you called your mom and said, I'm an artist, and I need to go to art school. How did she respond? I mean, she was both your parents really encouraged you to be this kindergarten teacher. How did they respond to you wanting to be an artist?
0: Well, my mom was the one who was uh, uh, supporting my ability to go to college. My father was he was financially capable, but chose to not financially support my uh, endeavor of receiving a college degree. He kind of believed that when you turned 18, you were on your own kind of guy. Um, How generous of him. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, so my mom, you know, that was hard for her. She actually uh, took a loan off of her car that she owned outright for me to go ahead and move to San Francisco. And I picked San Francisco Art Institute. And I wasn't thinking about San Francisco as being a, a very gay city. It was just like in California and a really good, notable art school that had like Ansel Adams and Minor White and Dorothea Lang and the legacy of that program in terms of photography is, is actually why I chose it. And. Mom supported it. She said, okay, but I'm only going to be able to pay the tuition, Kathy. This is a really big tuition. And just so you know, in 1981, it was about $7,000 a year. And she was able to get me all the way through paying the tuition. And I did get some scholarship money. And then grad school was, again, up to me. So if I was going to go to graduate school, then I had to do it on my own.
1: You left San Francisco to pursue your MFA at the California Institute of the Arts in Valencia. You said that that transition sucked. Yeah. It really <laughs> in, did. in in what way did it suck?
0: Well, I was leaving a community that was profoundly uh, also becoming decimated from AIDS. And I all of a sudden moved back into a very hot Uh, Southern California environment in the middle of a master plan community that I had exited when I was, you know, basically 19 years old from from living with at home in, in Poway. And to be all of a sudden going from the Bay Area of this incredible city, and it's the first time I had ever lived in a city, back to the suburbs, where it was really hot and I couldn't wear my leather jacket year round like I could in San Francisco, and being like kind of newly possessed of my my queerness, my, my being a dyke. It wasn't even queerness. I don't even think we used the word queer in, in 1985, but my my kind of being a dyke and what that meant for me. Yeah, and it was even, I even though I had Catherine Lord and Millie Wilson and amazing people around me at CalArts who celebrated that and definitely added on to my ability to understand theory and feminism and, you know, had Douglas Crimp come through the school, enormous amount of people at that time period. It still wasn't San Francisco. Yeah.
1: As a way to cope, you started photographing a planned community that was being built across the road from your apartment, which ultimately became part of your thesis portfolio. And this work included photographs of, quote, matching model homes, plots of land, and billboards advertising a United States where the children are apple-cheeked and toe-headed and the parents are as straight as Ken and Barbie, unquote. (laughs) What What provoked this particular direction of your work?
0: Well, at first I didn't have a car because I was moving from San Francisco and my car had been totaled and I just decided to walk with my camera. And so I was also, uh, you know, a street trained as more or less a street photographer in San Francisco. So in Southern California, there's very little street. And so you just start wandering. And I'm a big proponent of wandering. I talk about wandering quite a bit. And I recognized what was being built was actually what I watched being built in my uh, teen years and decided that it was something that I could try to Talk about.
1: In the meantime, you began to contribute photographs to lesbian magazines. You mentioned On Our Backs, um, whose name was a response to the anti-pornography feminist journal Off Our Backs. Yes. How did you How did you first discover the magazine?
0: Well, you're living in San Francisco, you know, you go, you, you're basically embedded in. At that point, Valencia Street in San Francisco was the kind of. Lesbian uh, area. The Castro was for the boys. Valencia Street was for the women. We had Artemis Cafe. We had Osento Bathhouse. We had Amelia's, which was the seven day a week lesbian bar. So you had all of this happening all at once. And I'll tell you, like the women who would go to Amelia's were also the women who were being photographed by, you know, wonderful photographers like Jill Posner and Susie Bright. And all of the kind of sex positive in terms of starting on our backs was right there at that time. And so I just decided, like, well, I want a picture and on our backs. I'm a photographer. I'm, I'm a lesbian. Why, why shouldn't I try to actually do that as well? Those
1: magazines introduced me to my own sort of private realization that I was gay at the time, although it was another 25 years before I publicly came out, but other magazines that I have in my collection that I thought you'd enjoy. I'm sure you know this one, oh, Bad Attitude. Attitude, yeah, and then Caught Looking, which was oh, just looking. an extraordinary publication. Yeah. At the time, you also joined a women's S&M society called The Outcasts, yeah. and it was co-founded by the activist and academic Gail Rubin. But you've said that S&M was never sexual for you and have described it as the scariest, most violent secret impulses that could be followed and validated and made almost cozy in an atmosphere where you could always say no. And you go on to say that you needed to push yourself to get over the enormous amount of fear you had around your body. Where do you think that fear came from? What was that fear about?
0: Well, it's, it's personal, and it's, it's not on the record in terms of personal, but there was some childhood trauma on my part. And I think that there was an enormous amount of healing that this community brought to me in relationship to trauma. And you've never read this in an interview, so I'm saying it right now for the first time. But And, you know, it's been very hard in, in a certain way to be quiet about this during the hashtag MeToo movement. But there's reasons and the reasons are, is when you make self-portraits that I made, people easily equate that to, oh, well, that's why she made that. She was traumatized as a child. And I try to very hard, again, that kind of compartments that I put things in. In this society, we're very easily to connote things and to take things and blow them out of proportion in a way that's not authentic to one's own experience. So my authenticity to my own experience and in my childhood was definitely uh, worked out on an emotional level very much so through the leather community. But at the same time, the publicness of that is not necessarily something that I feel I need to have completely spelled out in the world. I completely understand. Um,
1: For years, I was in the closet and also would not disclose my own early childhood trauma in with sexual abuse, primarily because I never wanted anybody to say that anything I did was because of that or that I was damaged in some way because of it or that I would be judged because of my own inner homophobia. Yeah. In in those decades. Yeah. But I know that the King community essentially saved the life of my wife, Roxanne Gay. She she's very public about the fact that if it weren't for the King community, she wouldn't be alive today.
0: Yeah. No, and I feel very, very much the same without having to lay out all the details of my past. But yeah. that, what a, an amazing place to be able to work out uh, so much. Thank you
1: for for feeling that you could trust me <laughs> with with this. Um, that sense of community that both you talk about that that Roxanne has experienced that seems to be the most important aspect of being involved in the BDSM scene, and that it was also political. It was as political as much as it was sexual, as much as it was community. And, and I read that you often talked philosophy in the dungeons.
0: Well, Gail Rubin is great to talk to. I mean,
1: <laughs> I
0: I remember at one point, you know, uh, asking Gail for coffee and just wanting to talk about the kind of amazing experiences of the transition of so many Butch Dykes uh, transitioning to male, like in the beginning, you know, and I wanted to have like a real philosophical conversation conversation with her in relationship to aids and the kind of work that she did in relationship to the gay male leather uh, sex clubs south of market and so when you when you have actual role models and brilliant people that were surrounded me at that time period, and very sex-positive people. Yeah, there was, like, really interesting, deep discourse in relationship to what we were doing and what we were holding, and also consensuality. And, I mean, I wish everybody had that education in some ways.
1: Yes, yes. Some of your early work for On Our Backs included photos of your sex toy and leather collection. There's a beautiful image of a woman standing while urinating. Um, and in 1987, you created a self portrait titled Kathy, which is a black and white image of yourself wearing a strap on, dressed in a negligee, astride a bed. Yeah. And at that time, you vowed you'd never be a voyeur within your own community. But I'm wondering, did you ever feel shy about sharing this part of yourself in such a public way?
0: Not anymore. Did you at that point? or? Yeah, I think that I did. I think that I was still protecting my parents and my family. Yeah. I think that it takes a long time to figure out how you should be as a person and what is okay to be out in the world in relationship to also this kind of weird protective bubble one puts around their their biological family and at at a certain point i just realized that my family is uh, my chosen family that even though i have a profound sense of love for my parents that i it was also not going to remain in the closet And that that was not a healthy position for me. And so I just decided to go for it. But I didn't put that image out, actually, until the 2000s. I mean, that's the thing. is like I went back into the archive. And I also probably thought that some of the black and white work from Girlfriends that I did was maybe too close to Mapplethorpe. And I needed to create my own identity within the leather community as a woman that was separate from Maplethorpe because we both also have similar aesthetics, right? Like we really like to highly aestheticize our material in a visual kind of um, classical way. And so that work in the 2000s was fine to pull out, where in the 80s, when, you know, Robert didn't pass away from AIDS until 1989, it was too close.
1: Is that why you stayed away from using a square format?
0: Well, I used a square format a lot in all that private work. I mean, it was all shot Hasselblad. And, uh, yeah, no, but, and the archive has that because it's a camera that I really enjoyed using, including in the new Fiden book, you'll see an image of me with my grandfather's Roloflex as a self-portrait on one of the beginning pages where it was like 1983 or 84. And I'm in New York city and it's a self-portrait with my grandfather's fedora with a big overcoat holding a twin reflex. So that work existed, and it was going on, and I was making it, but when I decided to make work of my own community, I felt that I needed to create a different way of thinking about documentary. And so, with being and having, which was the first studio photographs of mine with the with the women with fake mustaches, my friends with fake mustaches, and looking straight into the camera, like uh, using that yellow background consistently with the consistent framing, created a conceptual positioning to portraiture that I felt was a way to shift from uh, necessarily a comparison to Maplethorpe.
1: That work, being and having really shot you to fame, what made you decide to shoot them all on a golden yellow background?
0: Well, it was in my living room in Silver Lake. I lived on Sanborn Ave. And I, you know, uh, how I made all my early portraits was in my living room. I didn't have a studio. Like yellow is kind of a hard color in relationship to skin tone. But the other thing is, is in terms of the diversity of skin tone of my friends in relationship to inclusion, uh, it yellow was the best to kind of make it pop. Mm-hmm. And I would often have all my friends get their mustaches and we would kind of make the portraits because I was shooting with a 4x5 camera and we'd make the portraits and then we'd just hang out afterwards. So it was also I didn't. In a small living room in Silver Lake, I didn't have the ability to change over all different colors of seamless, nor was I thinking about seamless in that way at that point. It wasn't until I started making the portraits the year after, which began first as a collaboration with my good friend from CalArts, Richard Hawkins, who's a fellow artist, where we started making portraits of our mutual friends at that point, and then he realized that it was my body of work. And he just said, "This is this is yours. Go with it." Uh, but he he introduced uh, me th- uh, really thinking about Holbein and what nobility is and what that is within our queer community. We had amazing, extensive conversations about that. And Richard is a very brilliant person who I felt just helped lead a a pathway for me in in terms of continuing to photograph the community after I made Being and Having.
1: I understand that the title of the show, Being and Having, was a play on psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan's idea that men have the phallus, while women, as the embodiment of erotic desire and art, are the phallus. And when I was reading this, I'm like, was
0: this dude serious? so this is serious and i have to tell you that the title came from the woman with her arms crossed over her chest peeing in on our backs so she is an amazing philosopher from toronto canada by the name of anna marie smith and she was um one of the head kind of political philosophers and teachers at cornell but she was my lover at the time and uh, met her in Canada at a bar, you know, and she had been making postcards with a friend um, that were really awesome erotic postcards from this collective in Canada. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the collective's name anymore, but I was in the bar going, hey, do you know who made these? And then the woman I was talking to said, yeah, my myself and my next door neighbor did and then it started a very long friendship and love affair with Anne marie smith including the portrait that's on the bed the self-portraits on our bed when she came to visit me in california while i was in grad school that was a student's installation in their studio and they let us have it as a little uh, private palace, so to speak, during her visit. <laughs> wow. wow. So it all gets wrapped together. That's the beautiful thing about community, right? Is you meet people and you're in this kind of, a, you know, in the 80s, you're you're going through so much as a community, especially in relationship to politics and AIDS and, and visibility. And just all of these interweavings are really also a part of you know my ability to think and begin to figure out how to make work experience what your customer
1: experience is with user testing whether you're launching a new product prototype or marketing campaign you'll get real-time video feedback the user testing human insight platform lets you understand it all from your customer's perspective Plus, it allows you to target your exact audience, ask questions, or request to perform tasks and get a window into their world. The result? You feel what your customer feels so you can build the best experience imaginable. For a free trial, visit usertesting.com forward slash design matters. 20 years after you took the being and having photos, several were used to accompany the opening credits of the L word, the original yeah. version yeah. of the L word. What did you think when you were asked about their using your photos of women in drag for the titles?
0: I, you know, it's funny because I, I, there's another photograph that you probably know because you, you've really researched me and you know my work, but for our listeners, it's a photograph of from the series Domestic of yeah. two women in a swimming pool, uh, Miggy and Eileen. Eileen was the producer of The L Word. Eileen Chaikin. Eileen Chaikin. So for my first show at Regan Projects, her and Miggy hosted uh, my opening dinner party at their house. And so when she approached me, we had already forged a friendship in the art world. And I just thought, yeah, go for it. You're making a, a show. Let's like use lesbians with mustaches in the title. And I think that that is also a different kind of radicality of Los Angeles Because of the kind of lipstick lesbian uh, positioning of Los Angeles as a city, that I thought it was actually pretty brave that she wanted to do that. And it connoted also another part of the community in L.A. that might not be actually represented within the series.
1: Yeah, I love those. I love those opening credits. Uh, what do you think of the reboot? Have you been watching it?
0: You know, I haven't yet. I have to. I I have to get on that. I haven't watched the reboot, and it's just because there is so much to stream, and, and, and during the pandemic there was a lot to stream, and I'm just not caught up on the L word yet. But I will. It's it's in it's my wonderful. queue. It's in my queue. Yeah.
1: I'm loving it. I'm absolutely loving it. And just seeing Bette and Tina together, not as a couple, but just seeing them in the same room on the same sofa makes me happy. Yeah. (laughs) Catherine, you created three portraits in less than a decade, three self-portraits in less than a decade that propelled you to even greater awareness and fame in the art world and beyond. And I'd like to talk to you about all three, if that's okay. Yeah. The first is titled Self-Portrait Cutting. You created this piece in 1993, and it's a photograph of you from behind, facing away from the camera. You're shirtless. There's a drawing carved into the skin of your back, featuring two stick figure women smiling and holding hands. And behind them is a house with some birds flying, and it looks like it could be a child's drawing. And Mm -hmm. you're standing in front of what looks like a Baroque-type wallpaper. What did this photograph represent at the time?
0: Well, at the time, it was something that I actually was, it was is a photograph out of mourning. Uh, my first domestic relationship and the only one I had ever had before uh, being with my current uh, partner and wife, Julie Burley, was with a woman, Pam Gregg. And I was utterly in love and we built a house and we got two puppies and we were living the domestic dream. I imagined in my mind that it would go on for a long period of time that the two puppies would potentially turn into children and uh, all of all of that, which was still hard in 1993 to imagine. You know, yes. very difficult in yes. 1993 to imagine. And then blood as a substance is the substance that was feared. And, you know, one of the things that I did say in that quote that SM was never sexual wasn't actually completely true because Pam and I met in a leather context and ended up being lovers and i've had other lovers within the leather community in that context so there is a bit of sex you know kind of pleasure in terms of sexuality mixed into it in terms of my history of relationships but pam broke up with me and i was devastated and for a year i spent uh doodling on a pad And I would doodle these tick figure girls with the house with the sun coming out of the clouds as a sense of optimism, right? That I will find love again. And then I decided to go ahead and make it a cutting and make it a portrait. And I was in the process of making the other portraits at that time. And that it was just a profound sense of loss and longing, not just for me personally in losing my first domestic relationship, but the notion of loss overall in terms of the AIDS epidemic and watching it decimate all of these couples and communities. So even though there's two stick figure girls with skirts, but it was, yeah, I wanted to make a very complicated universal piece that went beyond my own personal sadness of the loss of my domestic relationship. And that is what I came up with.
1: Can you talk about how the artist Judy Bamber carved the illustration into your back what was that like for her
0: I think she was really nervous. I mean, it's actually on videotape. We have both God. cuttings on, on documented on videotape. Uh, we don't have self-portrait nursing, but we have the cutting on my back end pervert documented. Self-portrait cutting happened in Los Angeles in my new living room in what we called Casa de Estrogen, which was predominantly a lesbian uh, apartment building in Koreatown on Catalina Street.
1: And That's so dreamy. there was an
0: amazing history there. Jenny Shimutsu lived above me. And it was just an incredible group of, of, of dykes and their motorcycles that all lived together in this apartment building. And then my good friends, Mike and Skye, who had photographed, were there to support Judy. And my other good friend, who was the photographer, Connie Samaris, mm-hmm. took the dark slides out of the camera and operated the 4x5 camera because there wasn't a... you know. It's a self-portrait, but it couldn't be done like on a tripod with a cable release because it was four by five. Uh, So Judy practiced on chicken thighs (laughs) (laughs) before she practiced on my body. I hope there are photos documenting that, too. And what's amazing is Judy is one of the most precise painters ever. I mean, her work is unbelievable. If you don't know her work, look up her work and we're born on the same day in the same year so we both are share April 14th 1961 oh, wow. and she was one of my best friends and I wanted an apprehension in the cutting I wanted it to not be done by somebody like Mike or Sky who would have been able to do it perfectly I wanted the blood to kind of like almost like as if the surface of the skin was scratched but at moments like you know, the scalpel would actually make a mark that was more definitive. And it was never meant to be a permanent cutting. I guess, you know, it became obviously a pretty iconic portrait.
1: And then in 1994, you created Self-Portrait Pervert. Yes. This time, you're sitting in front of a black and gold brocade. Your hands are folded in your lap. You're facing the camera. Your head is completely covered in a black leather gimp mask. You're wearing leather chaps. And the word pervert is carved in bloody, kind of oozing, very ornate letters across your chest. And the body modifier, Raylin Galena, cut the word into your skin. And then two of your friends from a piercing shop lined your arms 46 times from the shoulder down to the wrist with two-inch needles.
0: Yeah, I think they were 12-gauge needles but i remember we wanted the gauge to be big enough that it would create like a appearance of body armor in a certain yes. way and that i wanted the cutting and the needles to be completely precise because i was thinking about holbein's kind of henry the 8th portrait in a certain way And I was thinking about what the word pervert meant in 1994 in my community, especially when there was a beginning of a divide within our own community. And this is very specific. It's not just for what pervert means from Jesse Helms holding up Mapplethorpe photographs on the Senate floor, but it also came from... Uh, internal homophobia of our own community of, again, the sex workers, the, you know, people who practice S&M were also perverts, and that there are portions of the gay and lesbian community that are quote, unquote, normal. And I didn't like the notion of normal. I've never liked the binaries of normal or abnormal. I'm more interested in the complexity of sexuality and desire. And so it was, um, yeah, it was that moment where, in the same way my friend steak tattooed Dyke on the back of her neck, that I was going to have Raylan do this cutting. And that was done in San Francisco, in a studio, while I was making the portrait series. It was uh, attended by an enormous amount of my friends, including the incredible trans historian, Susan Stryker, was there. And it was, you know, there were uh, the needles were done first and then I sat in the chair and uh, Raylan did the cutting. And then we then I put the hood on and we, we made some without the hood and some with the hood. But I really didn't want my face because I wanted the notion of visibility to be placed on language. So what does the word pervert mean? How do we deal with language? You know, is this enough of a pervert for you? And it's also really beautiful. And then you actually have to deal with the beauty of it as well. Because it's not dripping blood. It's not. It's done in such a way that it just looks like almost a red tattoo. But it is blood coming to the surface.
1: Well, there is a real elegance to the photo, the way it's constructed. Had you been very involved in body modification at that time as well. How hard was it for you to have 46 two-gauge
0: needles put through your skin? Uh, not that difficult actually, because really? I think that when you prepare yourself, it's totally different if you if I'm walking through the house and I stub my toe on a furniture, I sit there and I weep I'm like really angry, I can't believe I've hurt myself, but when you've already been kind of a in the leather community and you are doing this in the dungeons on your own you you know what you're kind of doing and so you your mindset is different i mean if you if somebody goes to the doctor and get gets a shot the only thing that is hurting is actually the fear of getting the shot So our kind of relationship to fear is so complicated as human beings, and I was never afraid because I knew that my friends were professionals, and Raylan was a professional, and that they had done this time and time again, and I had done a lot of play piercing and a lot of cutting in a private setting. And so I wasn't, uh, I was very definitive in knowing what I wanted to do and and had the mindset to go through it.
1: Did you experience any of the euphoria that sometimes occurs during body
0: modification? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Now your endorphins are going off the rockers. And it was funny, because if you watch the videotape, there's one moment where, you know, I have the, the group Dead Can Dance playing in the background, because I love that kind of meditative Music and you know you're breathing and you're going through it and then Raylan decided to stop for a moment and try to pop a pimple on my chest that was driving <laughs> her crazy and at that moment I lost my focus and then I started moaning a little bit more once she went back into the cutting um, the cutting is much harder than the needles to go through needles are fairly quick you know but. But definitely cuttings are take an enormous amount of concentration and you're and that's partly why I didn't want my face in the picture is because I the endorphins are going off with my glasses off, my eyes are slightly crossed, and the first thing that people look at in portraits is their people's faces usually. And it again it had to remain on the body and about the body.
1: The image was first shown to the public in nineteen ninety five at the Whitney Biennial. Yeah. And you've said that since then, you struggled to look at that photo now.
0: How come? Well, it's, it's not necessarily a struggle. It's I haven't said a struggle. It, it's, it's a photograph that I don't need to live with. It's a photograph that I made and that I'm proud of and that represented that moment in time. You know, I had diff- I had several collectors at different moments say how powerful that piece is to live with and that it's in their bedroom and they wake up to it every morning. And I guess I started thinking, could I wake up to that every morning? But one of the things that I love about photography, it defines the sense of time. Mm-hmm. And within the defined sense of time of that, you know, going back to that geeky kind of Cartier-Bresson notion of the decisive moment, like pervert is a decisive moment on my part, but that doesn't necessarily define me as a 60-year-old woman now. So the frozenness of my time in my community, I'm so profoundly honored that my friends and I myself chose to use ourselves in relationship to community to make and work on a body of work that created a certain history and a certain idea of visibility. But that doesn't mean that we're held in that time uh, in the same way that we're held in the time in terms of the making of the work.
1: Before I ask you about the third self-portrait, self-portrait nursing, I want to ask you about your thoughts on domesticity in your work. And you said (laughs) that self-portrait cutting was about the relationship between queerness and domesticity. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what that notion between queerness and domesticity is or was.
0: Hmm. Well, throughout history, people fall in love and throughout history in relationship to homophobia especially after say that you know the roaring 20s so to speak and when kind of the puritanical notion of homosexuality ended up entering the kind of uh, religious uh indoctrination of not being acceptable and so forth and the bible misinterpreted and so forth um when you fall in love, you often want to live with a person that you fall in love with. And so domesticity was always literally a part of the notion of having a relationship and being in love and, and opening up one's home of, of cohabitation. And to then be denied that both on legal fronts as well as just um, rhetorically within our society is uh, incredibly fraught. And so this notion of coming out of the closet always made me laugh because it's a closet is a domestic space. Mm. A closet is where one another's clothes co-mingle if you don't have your own walk-in closet, you know. Right, yeah. <laughs> Which I don't. But a closet is where a co-mingling of The everyday happens. And so, yeah, so it's, you know, domesticity has always been a part of love and relationship and trying to build a life and a home with another person.
1: After Cutting and Pervert, you drove across the U.S. in your RV photographing lesbian families, women who had children, who lived in groups, couples. engaging in everyday household activities across the country, and you titled the portfolio Domestic. Mm -hmm. Were you looking for something specific in that body of work?
0: Well, that body of work also was, I had been in a relationship then for three to four years with another amazing queer photographer, important lesbian artist on a historical level who should be you know she's in books like Stolen Glances but it's uh, her name is Kashila Brooke and we were about ready to buy a house together we were going to do it we had been in a three year relationship where she ironically was living on Sanborn Ave where I ironically lived with Pam, my first domestic relationship, and I was still in Casa de Estrogen down in Koreatown. And uh, I just decided um, to go ahead and celebrate the notion of domesticity uh, by getting an RV and going around the country and making these photographs. But they were also in conversation with... Glassy and MoMA in terms of pleasure and terror and domestic comfort. They were they were also a way for me to create a different kind of conversation around family. That is not just couples, that is also lesbian households. You know, that the body of work reflected a different notion of family within my own lesbian community. And uh Sheila broke up with me on the road while I was on the road making this. Oh. <laughs> Heartbreak <laughs> More more Kathy Obi Pulling out her violin and more Heartbreak right oh no I've been dumped So uh, I feel it I get it So uh, Yeah so that happened and then I was left printing all of this work As my next body of work And uh, once again My kind of attempt at Having domesticity Was a failed attempt Just as the cutting on my back And, you know, I basically picked up my life at that point because I didn't get a full-time job at UCLA that I was up for, for teaching. And I was dating a woman in New York, Daphne Fitzpatrick, another artist that we had met in Australia and started a mad Australian road trip and romance with each other. And I just, there was a job opening at Yale, and I thought, well, let me apply to Yale. And I ended up getting the job and moving from LA because of absolute heartbreak with my relationship. And yeah, that was that. And another chapter began.
1: Prior to teaching at Yale, I know that you were awarded a fellowship at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, which is where you met your current partner, Julie yes. Burley, yeah. who's also an artist. So I think you moved back to LA in an effort to be closer to her is that correct
0: no no oh, okay sto- so tell us the, tell us the, how the, that happened the story goes on the love story goes on of the yeah. love the so, love life of kathy Opie. some of those uh, intimate moments were harder to find exactly <laughs> um so i had met julie at wash U when i was teaching there on the freund fellow and she became a friend but i thought that she was really amazing and kind of she blew my mind uh julie uh julie was straight and i was dating daphne fitzpatrick in new york and i was you know my whole life was just super discombobulated in a in a way and so it was funny because i remember daphne going god you talk about julie a lot you know you talk you really do talk and i'm like yeah she's this really awesome woman she's my new friend basically daphne broke up with me as soon as i moved to new york which she was very wary she was like i hope you're not moving to new york for me like she was very clear that i shouldn't be moving to new york for her and that was fine i just really liked her and i liked her you know all all of us are still all best friends today today they're my posse in new york you know incredible group of of lesbian artists that are are you know now at this point we're have over a 20-year friendship with one another and so then i kept talking to julie burley when i lived in new york and uh julie ended up being my date to my show at the MCA in chicago that elizabeth smith curated and uh she kind of knew being my date that we were going to share the same hotel room and uh julie um you know we 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 fell in love and I said, by the way, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of trying to get pregnant. And she was like, Oh, okay. And uh, she had already raised a daughter. She was a single mom from the age of 18 on. And this was the first time in her life that she was being independent and living away from Sarah. And so it was kind of an incredible statement to say that I'm, trying to get pregnant and she was like okay and then we just ended up uh you know she moved in to LA when Oliver was three months old so I got headhunted I was asked if I was happy at Yale by UCLA by Jim Welling and I said why and he goes well I'm going to open a position and I would like you to apply for it and UCLA was always a dream of mine and uh I thought about okay, I live in Brooklyn, I wanna have a baby, I'm gonna have to move to New Haven, I can't be two hours away from a newborn. So all the stars aligned again for me, so to speak. And uh, I got pregnant in New York and moved back when I was eight months pregnant. Julie and I bought a house over a three day period of time in West Adams. We had three days to buy a house and we did. And then I moved into that house. And then she moved in when she finished her teaching position. And Oliver was about three months old. And you've been together ever since. Yeah. Oh, it'll be 21 years this November. Incredible.
1: Absolutely incredible. Well, the birth of your son, Oliver, and the part he plays in your third self-portrait I want to talk to you about Yeah. is the piece, Self-Portrait Nursing. Um, But before I ask you about it, there was one thing that I read that I thought was so interesting. When you were Trying to have a child, um, a number of your butch friends were shocked that you were going to have a preg- that you were trying to get pregnant and have a baby. And you said this at the time: "Why can't I be butch and have a baby? Why can't I acknowledge the fact that I'm a biological woman and I have a vagina that can do shit?" <laughs> uh, pretty much so. <laughs> it's so. I, I'm wondering if you have any perspective on why it's so hard for people to accept the sort of fluidness and expandability of gender and orientation
0: uh society quite honestly roles are presented to us i mean you are born the same year that i was born 1961 we had to learn how to read from dick and jane yep (laughs) yep we have it's a construct right it's a construct that you have to break and a lot of people have a hard time understanding what it is to actually break a construct so to speak of of what is dictated to us through this notion of normality in society
1: Yeah, it's taken me this long. It's it's taken me 50 plus years to even feel like I have the beginnings of some answers. And as I approach 60, I'm still struggling with truth and and authenticity, you know, what it means to be fully out in the world
0: in every way. Well, and it got slammed back at us in a completely different way in relationship to the last administration that we all just had to live under. I mean, talk about draconian measures again to go from an enlightenment of the White House being lit in rainbow colors from the Obama administration to what we just had to go through and are continuing to feel the ramifications from it in relationship to hate and homophobia within our society. Yeah, progress has been made, but that doesn't mean that it's still not frightening times to live in.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'm doing a lot of work right now with Lambda Legal, and there's real concern that there might be cases that come to the Supreme Court challenging marriage equality, which seems just...
0: Inconceivable. Yeah, and I say there's an enormous amount of us who are actually uh, have been able to uh, financially do fairly well in life. And I'm always a proponent of uh, starting a different kind of church for all of us uh, queer folks. <laughs> and that if they want our tax money, that it goes to that church. And then when they acknowledge us as actual, like, part of, of citizenship and equality. That they can have their tax money, but I'm I'm all for no no taxation without representation at this point. I'm, I'm over it. You know? Sign
1: me up, Catherine. Sign me up. <laughs> sign me up.
0: I just have to figure out a name for my non-church church.
1: <laughs> I can help you with that.
0: <laughs>
1: um, okay, self-portrait nursing. It's the third portrait yes. that. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about. You are shirtless in this picture as well. But for the first time, you are showing your face to the camera. You're holding your son, Oliver, in your wonderfully tattooed arms. You are looking into his eyes as he's nursing. You're both sumptuous and tender, and it's been described as a butch, dyke, Madonna, and child. (laughs) And I'm wondering, was that your intention?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm butch. I mean, I have short hair, but the body, the history of the body is very important in terms of uh, this portrait and the classical sense. I mean, I'm in a, uh, because design matters, I'm in a finial chair. Um, It's actually called the chieftain chair. It is a chair that in the house that I usually sat in to nurse Oliver. So it was important to bring it back to the studio. And then the red, just again, using that fabric with the gold threading. And it's funny because I finally just had my first trip to Rome. I mean, it's kind of crazy that I had borrowed so much culturally from a certain history of, of power in the Roman Empire, especially in relationship to imagery. But when I walk through the, you know, the Gallery Borghese from the Cardinal Borghese's house and all of these other things and saw the wallpaper and which I was using fabric backgrounds. It was funny because I knew that, obviously, through art history, that those were tropes that I was using. But until you're actually in front of something, until you're actually bearing witness, you don't realize the influences. And it was Madonna and Child. And I saw an enormous amount of Madonna and Child while I was in Rome, the Catholic Church and the representation of Madonna and Child is one of the best marketing campaigns ever. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Tell me more. Tell me more.
0: <laughs> and then all of a sudden to have the queer body be able to have a baby, to be able to be butch, to be able to live in their identity, for the scar of pervert to still be existing on the body ends up allowing you to begin to articulate and again look at that great marketing campaign of Madonna and Child in a very again, different way. So how do we make something iconic that ends up culturally being able to engage in the construct of culture in itself through history? And those are things that I've always been interested in, in terms of making work. It's fascinating to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Did you realize at the time that pervert could still be seen? Was that intentional?
0: Yeah, I know. It's a scar. It's there. It's slightly raised. Still? Yeah, yeah. Awesome.
1: Um, In 2011, several months before she died, you were commissioned by the actress Elizabeth Taylor to photograph her home in Bel Air, Los Angeles. How did that project first come about?
0: Well, she actually didn't commission me. Uh, We actually shared the same accountant who's still my accountant to this day, Derek Lee. And Derek for years kept saying, you know, Elizabeth Taylor is my client if you ever wanna do anything. Like I could I could propose something to her. And I kind of looked at him and I said, well, you know, I don't really do celebrity. And then I had done the body of work inauguration of going to D.C. for three days and making a body of work and a book and a portfolio out of the, you know, uh, the first ever elected African-American president in the United States. And I was thinking a lot about what what is a portrait? How do we begin to think about a portrait? And I also had photographed quite a bit for Dwell Magazine, which were portraits of people's incredibly interesting homes. But inauguration is in conversation, and I love having conversations with other artists. It's in conversation with Eggleston's Election Eve, where he went around Georgia and photographed just the landscape as Carter was becoming president of the United States. And then also Eggleston photographed Graceland after Elvis passed. And I was thinking about, like, okay, those are two different kinds of portraits, right? Those are really interesting ideas. And I've often used landscape in relationship to portraiture, too. It's something that I'm profoundly interested in. And so I went back to Derek and I said, yeah, I want to make a portrait of Elizabeth Taylor through her home, through her belongings. And would that be something that you could propose and I could get access to? and so i met with her personal assistant tim who i became very close with through the process because during the process elizabeth passed away while i was still photographing the house and um and it was a profoundly amazing experience i never met her but i feel like in a weird way i was granted kind of the last portrait of elizabeth taylor yeah and it didn't have to be done with her before a camera, but it became much more intimate and much more tactile in relationship to her home. And the home was immediately dismantled and sold upon her passing.
1: You photographed 3,000 images of her possessions and her private spaces, her vanity table set with lucite containers of carefully organized eyeshadow in her sitting room, her blue velvet sofas, which I assume were supposed to be kind of like mimicking her eyes, her Christmas decorations, which she specifically asked that you do, shoes and boots and more shoes, her lavish clothes. And what was that like for you? How, how did you feel doing that?
0: It was really quiet. And I really appreciate quietness. Um, I would go in, the house was so soft, lush. I lived in West Adams. You know, I lived on a rowdy, rowdy block that was pretty much run by uh, uh, the gang, the Bloods. And it was car racing and squealing tires and music. And it was a lively, lively neighborhood. And all of a sudden I would... A gate would open and I would go into this driveway and go through this front door of a house that was lushly carpeted. And you kind of use such great descriptive terms, but it became this place that I could slowly watch the light unravel in each room. I had time. It was close to UCLA, so I would often go after I was done teaching and spend the afternoon. They always offered me lunch. The staff was incredible. Her whole entire office was in her home. I really loved her cat, Fang. Fang and I became really good friends. Uh, it was um, it was a reprieve from a lot of chaos in my life that I could slowly unravel through a six month period uh, in making a portrait. And one doesn't normally make a portrait in six months. They make a portrait within, you know, 40 minutes of somebody visiting the studio.
1: How would you describe Elizabeth Taylor through getting to know the objects in her life?
0: That she was passionate as a human being, that uh, her objects held memories for her that they also were about her love of shiny, sparkly things, but that it was also a stuffed animal that somebody would bring over to her would hold as much importance. Um, She was a generous person in my mind, and the generosity that she and her team displayed to me was obvious in, in everything that was cared for she was also really independent and savvy and understanding of a woman of her generation and when she was born that she could hold power and that also she could hold power with her voice as an activist and she was an activist at a period of time that we really needed yes and if she was the person who was actually able to get ronald reagan to save aids to say what was happening. And that was her who did it as well as starting the early fundraising, that within all the softness and the lushness, there was utter power and a position of humanity that I just have an enormous amount of respect for.
1: In one photo of Elizabeth Taylor's vanity, there seems to be a line written in lipstick on the mirror. Oh
0: yeah. Colin. And I think it
1: reads the quest for Japanese beef. Yeah. What What is that about? <laughs> what is well, that line from?
0: Well, Colin Farrell became very close with Elizabeth and would visit Elizabeth a lot. And he went in her bedroom and in, in her bathroom area after visiting her and wrote in her lipstick that he was going to take her out for Japanese beef. And so that remained on the mirror uh, because <laughs> actually there wasn't any expectation of, I mean, it was. I was getting ready for them to bring all the luggage out into the foyer because she was going to go on a big trip to New York, and I was going to have the opportunity to photograph what it looked like when she packed her bags for a big trip, which, what according to her assistant Tim, was a lot of luggage, you know, uh, because she could always wanted to have the, you know, choices around her. And then the next thing I heard was she was hospitalized. And then we rapidly tried to get the blue room together, which is represented as a, one of the last moments in the book of this blue room that almost looks like angel wallpaper because she was going to you know, move back downstairs. She wasn't able to go up the stairs any longer, and she would come home from the hospital to this room. And it was described to what she wanted the room to look like. And so we were racing around getting that done and I was still in the house photographing as all of this was happening and then she passed and so the blue room you know never got to be realized with Elizabeth in it and so that's one of the reasons why it's photographed in that way as well as the jewelry abstracted was the the day that um Christie's came to take the jewelry Uh, Tim and everybody called me and said, you know, this is the last day that the jewelry is going to be in the house. Do you want to come by? And so in the morning, we came by with the sun, just gorgeous. And we took a couch pillow out and we laid some of the jewelry on a couch pillow for it to sparkle back to Elizabeth, you know. And I made these abstract photographs that feel almost also like an homage to her passing. And and, extraordinary. Yeah, so it was yeah, it was one of those extraordinary experiences of somebody who was obviously one of the biggest famed Hollywood movie stars um but who also led an extraordinary life helping others.
1: The last project that I want to talk to you about today is your 2018 film, your first film, The Modernist. A twenty two minute movie containing eight hundred photographs about a frustrated artist who, unable to buy their own home, starts burning down beautiful houses. Yeah. Um, and I believe that this is also this film is also in conversation with another film that preceded it that was also created with still photographs. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, that would be Chris Marker's film La Jete which was made pretty much after you and I were both born. It was made in 1962. And the biggest fear in 1962 was uh, nuclear obliteration in relationship to the Cold War. Uh, you have to think about the Cuban Missile Crisis and other things that were happening historically at that moment in time, in which Chris Marker made La Jete, which is about love and longing and memory, and it's kind of like a pseudo-sci-fi film made out of stills. But it's an incredible political poem to that time. And... Uh, I wanted to do a conversation in terms of that maybe at this point in time, uh, the notion of nostalgia and modernism as a utopic dream has also failed us. So, using my good friend who I photographed for years, Pig Pen, who's whose name real name is Stash Fila, Piggy and I have a very, very close relationship, and I asked Pig Pen to star as the protagonist of this film. And it was also the last piece that I made in my West Adams studio behind my house because I had moved finally, I was going to move to a bigger studio. And so it is is—it uh, is about the fact that I will never be able to afford a case study house or any kind of house which was supposed to be affordable at this point in time in which they were made. It also mirrors the time period of when La Jetée was made. And so it's a quandary. It's a quandary to where we are at this point in time. But it also is a trans body. It's a queer body. And we all know in terms of economics that one of the hardest economical groups is lesbians, actually, in order to be able to own property or prosper in any way because we still do not have wage equality in this country. So it was like trying to put in all these ideas of a lot of other bodies of work that I've mapped out all into one piece.
1: Um, Pigpen is one of the two most photographed people in your body of work. Yeah. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why you keep coming back to photograph them?
0: Pigpen is just one of the people that I've just really, really loved in my life as a friend. I mean, I have gone through so much with Pigpen. We have gone through losing so much in our community to performing together with Ron Athey to just our bodies are... Are you know are entwined on a very emotional friend way. Like I would do anything for for Pigpen, and Pigpen would do anything for me. And I think it's really really important to also say because it has been brought up in a number of interviews about Pigpen being one of the most photographed people, as well as one of my best friends, Idexa, um, is that uh, I think that a lot of people view this as a potential muse and i don't view my friendships as muses or who i photograph over and over as muse i might really enjoy looking at them you know but by no means are they muses they're friends that i'm i honor in relationship to kind of image making i don't i have a harder time with this notion of muse
1: that's so interesting it would never have occurred to me that that Pigpen was your muse. If, if, if I had to pick anything or anyone that was amused to you, I would say it would be culture.
0: Yeah, exactly. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wouldn't have
1: even occurred to me. Yeah. What was it like? Was it different directing, so to speak, a film versus taking a photograph? Because it is a film made of photographs. I'm just wondering about that relationship.
0: Yeah, no, I think that it wasn't. And it was interesting because I have a a longtime assistant, Heather Rasmussen, who's just amazing and does everything for me. And it was harder for her than it was for me, because she would say, like, do we need to storyboard this? Like, how are you going to do this? And I said, it lives in my head. I can't necessarily... What am I going to do, draw stick figures? Because that's about all (laughs) I can draw anyway. And I said, no, this, this piece lives in my head. And... I knew that I wanted to create a sense of multiple cameras. I knew that within the stills, I wanted it to, I wanted to rack focus and then bring things into focus. I knew that I wanted to use the newspaper as a platform of what comes in our lives and how we deal with it.
1: I also. Really well done, by the uh, way. As a designer, I can say (laughs) those were good.
0: (laughs) And I I knew that this was, uh, I knew that the, the protagonist was an artist who lived in their studio and that's all that they could afford and through this they were making a piece and their piece extended with the incredible amount of fires that always happen in California too so fire in itself is one of the most feared elements in uh, California we have major wildfires burning right now but what it is in also in terms of notions of loss in, a, in ideas around what we all have lost through, you know, uh, not being able to afford to buy a house, to live on the fringe of one's ability in society, what modernism was supposed to apply. And then you have, you know, stores like Design Within Reach, which is, you know, all we all know in our, our joke of our community, it's designed without reach, you know.
1: <laughs> and yeah, Whole Foods is Whole Paycheck. <laughs>
0: right. Whole Foods is Whole Paycheck. So this idea that we could live this kind of utopic notion of what modernism was going to give us. And this was also formed in relationship to devastation culturally in terms of World War II. You know, it's like when you think of who moved here and who was designing houses from Schindler on, it was really uh, even uh, Brecht writing for Hollywood films. Like that is so interesting to me as also as a as a place of a Los Angeles and what is iconic about the idea of a better health here in L.A. It's no longer affordable to live in this city. We have. Over 50,000 people unhoused right now in this city.
1: It's it's really quite astonishing to see what's happening in the parks and on the sides of highways in Los Angeles. It's just completely inconceivable that as a culture and a community, we could allow this.
0: Yeah, it's devastating. And I needed to speak about that. And I didn't. I You know, we all assumed that Hillary would get elected. Right. But I actually didn't have those assumptions. I actually saw the percolation of what we went through in the last four years, and I felt an incredible need to talk about the times that we are living in.
1: You were recently appointed the departmental chair of the UCLA Department of Art. Yeah. Congratulations. So yeah, thank you. Um, this comes after your appointment as the university's inaugural endowed chair in the art department a position that was underwritten by a $2 million gift from the philanthropists Linda and Stuart Resnick. And I was really struck by the goals that you've outlined as department chair, which include raising scholarship funds to ensure an arts education is actually accessible to all students, which seems like the real centerpiece of of what you hope to be able to do. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what Changes you're hoping to make to create more accessible education for students in the arts?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, one of the greatest things about UCLA is it's a historically amazing art department. Uh, We are a public university. Being a public university, we do not have the same kind of funding opportunities in relationship to getting students and it's getting harder and harder to get our top choices because we have places like Yale who also then not only do full scholarships, but then they actually do a stipend to live upon as well. I think that those who can afford an education should actually pay for an education, but I am completely opposed to going into debt for education. So I was very careful about my words in my interview in the L.A. Times where I laid out my goals, because my goal is that art students are able to leave with a degree debt free. And in order to do that, I need to raise money for a scholarship to create a larger endowment so that we can accomplish that for both undergraduate and graduate students. We need to further endow more positions in the art department and that is specifically for adjunct. It is also unsustainable for adjuncts to be living in the way that they live now and I was adjunct for a long time. Um it is, it is not sustainable not to have medical insurance and it is not sustainable for somebody to potentially live on $20,000 a year here in Los Angeles. That's not sustainable. So I'm really interested in sustainability in terms of also how much the adjunct community brings to the overall amazing education opportunity for both our graduate and undergraduate students. And we need to celebrate that versus make it a detriment for them. And so by endowing more positions, we can create an ability to potentially give two to three year contracts that include medical insurance and then we're allowing a pool of really amazing young artists to be able to have their first opportunities to teach at a university like UCLA and then hopefully be able to gain employment in other places. So it's a a two tiered thing in relationship to students leaving in debt, but that also that we are kinder and more responsible to those who give us so much within the department.
1: How do you manage your sort of pedagogical life with your art and life as an artist?
0: (laughs) There are those closets again, right? (laughs) The (laughs) compartments. I mean, at this point, it all seems like it just flows together. You know, it really does. And uh, I think I'm pretty good at time management. I have a really good assistant who really helps me extraordinarily. And at this point, the experience of making the work and the knowledge in relationship to what I want to make and the experiences that I try to put forth to figure out what I'm making all feel incredibly fluid. They're not fraught. You know, I think that I would say that in the 90s and in my 30s, I had more anxiety And at this point, I'm beyond mid-career artist because I'm 60, and I've been making work in the art world for now 30 years. And I think that I'm really just excited about the continuation of being able to talk about what I see around me during my lifetime and live out my life with the love of my beautiful family and friends and i'm really hokey and gonna cry about that right now because it is uh i've worked really really hard and that is the hard thing about having multiple closets so to speak is sometimes there were too many clothes and um and i feel that i'm i've been able to pivot and move and be aware and continue to feel that I'm tied into the things that are interesting for me. And I have the incredible support of being able to have the longevity that I've had in relationship to being an artist. And I wish that everybody had those kinds of experiences.
1: Catherine, I have one last question for you. It's not particularly profound, but it is one that I'm Highly curious. About.
0: <laughs> um, I don't like curiosity. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Is it true that you've been watching the soap opera Days of Our Lives since you were seven years <laughs> old?
0: You got that right when I was taking a sip of water. Sorry. Yeah, I'm coming. Uh yeah. Yeah, I could tell you everything that's happening right now up to date with Days of Our Lives, but it's uh Oh
1: my goodness. I
0: have. I <laughs> literally have. I can tell you about all the characters, all the history of the characters. I'm a walking encyclopedia of Days of Our Lives. And why? Uh, why? What is it about Days of Our Lives? You know, it's something that I watched with my mom. I guess that they, I don't know, they became a, another pr- place of a dysfunctional family for me. Like, all the drama, uh, like, if that drama was the drama, then do I have to think about my own drama, so to speak? And then you just get tied up in it in a really dumb, hokey way. Like, And it's something that I could talk about with my mom. Like, yesterday I called her. But <laughs> this is literally a conversation I had yesterday, okay? Mom. What? It's like, okay, if Lonnie is really the daughter of, you know, this character and Abe is the father, does that mean that they had sex when she was going out with, uh, Uh, when Abe was going out with his sister like like that's like (laughs) literally a conversation I will have with my mom and she's like I don't know we'll just have to see it'll have to unravel so it gives a little touching point for my mom and I in this shared history of these characters in the life of Salem and then I've run into the characters in LA and I even had one of the characters come to my studio for a studio visit and i've always wanted to make still lives i'm putting it out there on design matters maybe you can help me make it happen oh Uh, i would love that i i want to make still lives of the set of days of our lives
1: okay (laughs) this is going to happen you heard it you heard it here first listeners do you want this (laughs) not that what the one with the um hourglass hourglass yes Yeah, yes. yeah
0: yeah and so are the days of our lives Catherine Opie,
1: thank you, thank you, thank you for creating such important, extraordinary work, and thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters. Oh. It has just been an honor, an absolute honor.
0: Well, thank you. It was a, it was a fantastic interview, and really appreciate thank it. You.
1: Thank you. You can see a survey of Catherine Opie's work in her extraordinary new monograph, simply titled Catherine Opie, published by Phaidon. This is the 17th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective by Curtis Fox Productions. In non-pandemic times, the show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts Master's and Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.